Hello and welcome to this special edition to add to our Irish Life and Lore podcasting library. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. 1922-222, A Century of Change is the title, recently launched in the RDS. The number of recordings comprises of 287 interviews with people who in their lives made a difference to the way Ireland is today. There are many categories in this collection, and for this week's podcast, I have selected a number of sound clips to illustrate the value of this collection. And the first category is agriculture, and we start with Margaret Gill. Uh, and so living in, in Marion, Dublin sorry. 4, yes. beside the Vincent's Hospital, up yeah. the road from that, literally. So what was your father doing then? Your father was delivering milk. We had a milk business. We had cows in the sheds there and out on that area. Yeah. And uh, 30 or 40 would ever write. I think it was about 40. Yeah, cows. They were there and they milked those. We had a dairy and they distributed the milk to three or four areas round Merion. Uh, what was the dairy called? Uh, Marino. Imagine, yes. Yeah. And uh, my father delivered milk as far out as Monkstown, almost on the border of Dunleary. He would go in a horse and cart and cans of milk. And the people would leave the jugs at the doors. And my father would fill the jugs early in the morning, even though they didn't want them till breakfast time, but they weren't too happy if he wasn't there. So he was up at four o'clock in the morning delivering the milk. Mary O'Sullivan from County Kerry. I was very much involved here in Glenbe with the Irish Country Women's Association. It got me involved with a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. And I was forever doing things for the parish. Because it was very poor parish that time, you know, yeah. and the, the the clergy hadn't much money at all. Yeah. So, well, there was a very a dear little school back, letter way, you know, back to parish, and we we used to we used to run socials there. Yeah, and did you have teaching classes for, uh, for uh, domestic That's work? That's one something I produced myself. Mm-hmm. I sold turkeys to the Burlington Hotel and uh, Green Isle Hotel in Dublin mostly. And Mary Heavey, who's farming on the outskirts of Tullamore in County Offaly. Did you know? <laughs> and I sold turkeys to the hospital in, in uh, Tullamore as well. So you had a big now, flock of them out there. Yeah, then, you'd so. never be allowed to do that now. Like you have to send them away to get them... Uh, you know, killed and blocked yeah. and cleaned out. And did we you do all clean, that here? We used to clean them out. Like, Barney yeah. myself would be up real early before the children would be going, before they'd be awake and the tips. Oh, I sold them to the golf as well. Do you know? And she told us, you see, that, you know, when you have it killed and yeah. plucked, they'd buy it just uh, killed and plucked. Yeah. You know, um, just rub a little bit of flour, she used to say to the, vet, the, to the breast and, um, They'd look lovely and white, you see. And the fellow that used to buy them from the golf was a butcher in town, you see. And he said to me, he was on it, he said, he needn't be bothered rubbing the flower to it. 
<laughs> we thought they wouldn't see it. And another fascinating category is policing and defence. I, I genuinely love soldiering and uh, I arrived at a very opportune time in the history of the Defence Forces because our economy was waking up. Desmond Trevor's Irish Army Colonel retired after the torpid years of the post-war period. And the army was beginning to move out of garrisons and becoming a garrison mentality institution into a functional field institution. And that became very, very necessary, both for the peacekeeping duties we found ourselves doing abroad and also because of the rise of the difficulties in Northern Ireland, which was spilling down across the border into the Republic. What I found interesting about uh, our duties abroad was that they were remarkably similar to the duties we had to perform under aid to the civil power here at home. So a soldier who acquired any kind of experience, either at home, escorting prisoners or escorting uh, cash in transit or uh, securing uh, government buildings or securing a Garda car, was doing something rather similar when he wound up in Cyprus or later on in, in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the reasons why we became so good and we're not good, well-liked and well-regarded by the societies that we contributed to. And McCabe, the widow of Jerry McCabe, who lost his life in a dare. Here she talks about that moment. So they just said, well, we'll take the Adair run. And they took it. And um, when they were driving out, it was kind of misting. And Jerry said to Ben, Ben, turn on the wipers. And that was the last conversation they had. They were just coming into Adair when Ben saw the Pajero Jeep through the mirror. And he said, oh, Jesus, Jerry. He knew they were in trouble. That's exactly what he said. Okay. And um, so did shots ring out? Or they did didn't. They... they rammed the car from the back. Okay. And uh, they told the post office, uh, Jackson was his name, Willie. Willie Jackson, to get out of the car. And he was sitting down on the footpath, I believe, with his hands up there. He thought he was going to be shot too. But they started firing indiscriminately into the car. They didn't give them a chance. Okay. And then they said it, it wasn't intentional. But how do you call not intentional when you start firing and you stop? Yeah. And you start again. Okay. So what was unintentional about that? Mary Garvey joined the police force in 1962. She was one of the first women to become a Bangardee and she was attached to Edward Street Garda Station. I, again, I can, I can imagine how a man would feel uh, if you were trying to arrest him or, so, or something. That Well, I can safely <clears throat> say that on one occasion uh, I was walking across the junction at Willem Street and two men were absolutely beating each other up and I took one of them into the station. He walked in with me. Okay. My he goodness, walked yes. in with me. Yeah. So do you stopped the fight, obviously. Yes, and he walked in with me. 
There are a large number of entries in the business category, and they're all fascinating. I've selected two. David Bottomer, former economist with Cement Roadstone in the 1970s. But we did invest in one thing. When Marathon um, found gas in the Kinsale field, um, Cement Roadstone, uh, through John A. Woods, um, invested in a pipe coating plant to coat in concrete and bitumen the pipe that brought the gas from the Kinsale field underwater ashore at Cork. Um, so that was an interesting thing, but it, 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 because so little other discoveries were made off Ireland, that was the only uh, offshore oil investment they ever made. Okay, and so you were instrumental in having that happen? Uh, yes, in that I could see it was an opportunity. It was about the only opportunity for them. But I have to pay tribute mostly to Tony Barry, who was the head of John A. Wood at, at that stage, which was a, a subsidiary of uh, Cement Rolstone. David Kennedy, former CEO with Erlingus Group. Here in this clip, David is talking about when he first came to Erlingus in the 1960s. The structure of management was unique in Ireland, I would think. Uh, in that it had a total cross-section of Irish society at the time. Um, Catholic, Protestant, left-wing, right-wing, Republicans, Unionists. Um, J.F. Dempsey was the most remarkable man. Uh, he had been the, really the founding father of Erlingus. He wasn't there at the very beginning, but he came very shortly afterwards. And uh, his view was you get the best person for the job to run the, whatever department it was, irrespective. I mean, at one level, one of our managers had been interned in the Curra during the war for uh, IRA activities. At the other end of the spectrum, we had uh, Jack Kelly Rogers, who had been Churchill's pilot during the war. Our pilots were a mixture of Irish Air Corps and ex-RAF people. Um, Michael Dargan, who succeeded J.F. Dempsey, was a farming background from County Mead. Um, J.F. Dempsey himself was middle-class background accountant in Dublin. Um, total cross-section. In this category of social history and community, uh, they are some amazing people doing incredible work, and I've selected a number of these people to illustrate the value of what they do. Starting with Claire Edwards, who was born in Belfast. She joined the Franciscan missionaries and in the 1970s worked with handicapped children in St. Mary of the Angels in Beaufort in County Kerry. It was difficult for parents of children with disability and there was no place for them here in Kerry, none whatsoever. A lot of them were hidden away. Um, nobody, you know, really wanted to know about them because I think the old thing then was that it was a curse on the family, which is what I'm experiencing in Africa at the moment, and that, you know, they, they just weren't normal. But who's normal, you know? And um, I, I loved my work there, absolutely loved it. And I, I was amazed at the parents of these children, you know. Yeah. It was so, life was so difficult for them, yeah. what it was. Um, but it was wonderful, and... I remember saying to Mother Fatima, I want a swimming pool, therapy mats and therapy ball, that's all I want. So we built the swimming pool. That was one of the, I suppose, central immediate clinic at one. I remember going up there to see their pool and we built a pool and that was great for them. And then we gradually got the school going. And 
Helen McCarty, who advocated for women's rights in Limerick City for many years. Of course, I was caught up with the exuberance of the women's movement uh, with uh, Jude Cal, who had founded uh, ADAPT, one of the first houses for uh, the used to be called battered wives, but I'm looking for another word now, but for distress yeah. in the home. But um, I was in that and working away in that and enjoying it. And But I realised there was one part that was never mentioned uh, was um, uh, the feminism within the church. It was all feminism elsewhere, feminism in business and in the law. There was a great stress on, on that, the legal position of women in the home. But I began to realise that I'd like to know what goes on within the church and how are women treated in the church. Yeah. And this had never been never been looked at at all. It was just a fact of life, the way things were, the patriarchal church. Sister Stan Kennedy grew up in Lisboa outside Dingle and here she talks about how she discovered at a very early stage that she wanted to work with the poor. I suppose the strongest thing for me was that I wanted in some way to work with the poor. Uh, my sisters had gone ahead of me and they were trained in teachers and nurses and I felt that was important. Which I wanted to work more directly with poor people. I'd read some things about uh, poorer children particularly and I I was also aware that as I grew up particularly as I went to Dingle to school I was aware that of the difference between people that there were people who had nothing who owned nothing and there were people who owned things and even though they might only have owned small farms or small shops or whatever they were more important than the people who didn't own anything yeah. And I, so I, I was aware of difference, and I suppose it, I wanted to do something about it. I wasn't quite sure what that meant. When the troubles in the north of Ireland broke out, there were a number of people in the south that wanted to give some lending hand to those who were caught up in the violence, and Doherty, Cantrell and Una Heaton from Limerick City tell how they helped. I've been with the Irish Peace Institute, based at Jewel, for 25 years. Prior to that, I worked with Cooperation North. Latterly, it was called Cooperation Ireland. The name was changed because it made more sense. And uh, both organisations were founded by Dr. Brendan O'Regan from County Clare, the famous Shannon Man. I was very much aware of what was happening up north and I'm very passionate about uh, peace because I feel there is a way to be dialogue. Give, that's the way to actually go forward rather than violence. I don't, I abhor violence. And I got involved because of uh, Tim Parry. Tim Parry was one little boy who was only 13 at the time, blown up by an IRA bomb in Warrington. And the Peace Institute had a, had, was I, atta- I attached myself to the Peace Institute because I met Dorothy and I said, Dorothy, let's do something, right? And she said, yeah, you're welcome to come on board. Yes. And with Noel Flannery, the late Noel Flannery, who just passed away a few two months ago, who was a great man for the, we, the, the work we've done. And the three of us were known as the Three Musketeers. For this final clip in this uh, category, 
um, Mary Shukru and her husband George talk about their work in loading up container trucks and traveling to Belarus. And this they were doing for 25 years. We stand on the street and we collect with buckets. We do church gate collections. We bag packed. Wow. We did head shaves. We did any imaginable the fundraiser that shave. you can think of. We did and yeah. still do to fund the dental project now and the convoy <clears> and <throat> the aid. Yeah. So we, we, we just, we spend, not alone do we work out there, but we spend nearly every weekend of our lives doing something to gather money to go to, to fund this these mm. um, programs in Belarus. You know, as much as we were doing here in Ireland, we could do more if we uh, were physically on the ground over, we could bring over food, medicine, uh, PPE, um, nappies. Nappies are a huge thing in the orphanages because you'd have an awful lot of um, high dependency children yeah. and they would all be in nappies. And I'm talking children from the age of four to the age of 18. So okay. you would have adult children in nappies as well. And they had nothing there and they had no proper laundries. And she felt that we could do more by going out, by bringing all those things with us. And then maybe yeah. doing um, sanitary facilities for the children in the orphanages. Under the category of education, I selected Kathleen Rice. She was a principal school teacher in Tralee, and here she speaks passionately about introducing sport to the school. We were much a very GA family, and when I when I went to college, I started the I re uh, restarted the Camogie club there. No, I played Camogie. We played in the Sigerson, and we went. Well, we went to Galway and we went to Belfast. We it what, was to what college when you went to university? University, yeah. You the, started Camogie. Well, I it, it it had been there and it had died away. Yeah. So I reignited it, did and we got a group of us together and we got it going. Did you? And they they were flying afterwards, like they've they've been. Hurling is 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 very uh, popular in Cork, so it took off like wildfire. You spoke about starting camogie yes uh, in, i did in, in ucc did you did you do anything about bringing that into the school oh uh, we i uh, we had i had started a club in Tralee as well we called it the austin stacks and i had camogie going in Tralee for three years i but then i had i couldn't i hadn't time i had three children and i was teaching full time so i hadn't time and it went on it was Alice King, Emer Hutchinson. I'm trying to remember Mara O'Keefe. They were they they took over after when I when I retired from it. Pat O'Leary, a retired national school teacher, taught from the 50s into the 70s um, in South Kerry in Ballinaskelligs and Carrasavine. Here he talks about the changes he witnessed. They are very good now at orderliness and at expressing themselves, which they weren't. I'd say prior to that. That's one great improvement. And they have good confidence. You know, they don't mind making a mistake, like, which, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But they're quite good. Spelling and tables, not so good. A lot of that is due to texting, you know, because they don't have to spell. And they use the calculator to make up the... You know yourself, but the Fingers. old system of... Yeah. Pound shillings and pence. All the work we had to do with that. Yeah. Two hundred and forty pennies in a pound. Do you know what I mean? It's all it's all ten now, like and tens. Exactly. Yeah, that's easy. Architecture in this category 
It reminds us that in some areas of Irish life we have failed to change. And here, architects talk frankly about their developing issues that have not been resolved. And we start with Jerry Cowell. Getting to the School of Architecture's role in the renewal of the city. The, the keys, the city keys at the time particularly, looked like the bombs had just stopped falling. It was just unbelievably bad. There was no, I mean, to see photographs from those that era and it's and like areas around Manchester Square and all the rest, it was kind of, it really did feel that this city was just slowly crumbling into dust and into rubble. And so uh, the principal officer for the inner city in Dublin City Corporation at the time um, was it Bill Lacey was his name he ultimately went to work for Sean Mulryan uh, he actually approached the School of Architecture approached Cahill and said will the School of Architecture take on an idea about looking at the city looking at the keys looking coming up with ideas so I was bouncing around the place as usual kind of enthusiastic about the notion and Cahill said to me he said would you coordinate this would mm. you would you act as the, the kind of person so that was a great opportunity because what we did was we set this whole school up as a kind of vertical structure. So years one, to four, three, one, two, three, four, all worked together. Simon Walker. It was a building of my father's that was demolished there on Back Street Bridge. A lot of people thought it was a pretty mundane building, fine. Nevertheless, it was 1961. It was kind of an essay in um, architectural principles, if you like. It was it was a pure building, beautifully detailed. It was perfectly fine. It could have withstood for 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 centuries. What building was this? It was the Board Fulcher headquarters. Oh, yeah. And we, I mean, I fought the demolition of it. Uh, you know, all the way through to to Board Planola to an oral oral hearing. Yes, uh, I lost. Um, the demolition went ahead. In 2018, it has been sitting as an empty hole in the ground ever since. And that's because the the demolition of that thing never made sense, Mm -hmm. right? And meanwhile, you have, Mm -hmm. you know, you you have areas like the Thomas Street area, you have areas like, you know, the O'Connell Street area, in fact, where, so they're allowing private funding, pension trust funding, to come and demolish perfectly good buildings in Dublin too, and meanwhile, neglecting areas of the city which could absolutely benefit from that kind of investment, you know, um, that's a lack of that's a lack of public, it's a lack of state intervention. And also in the architects category, Gronje Shaffrey talks about her collaboration on the rebuilding of the former ESB premises on Fitzwilliam Street, and particularly her role in the refurbishing of 11 extending Georgian houses and their return to residential use. One of the projects that we're just finishing at the moment is part of the ESB Fitzwilliam project. Um, There's a big new building designed by uh, Grafton Architects with Amahony Pike, and then we've been involved in the... uh, restoration and adaptation of the Georgian houses that run partly on Fitzwilliam Street around the corner and down Mount Street. And what's been really interesting about those, there's a, there's 11 houses and we will have 11 apartments. Three of the houses are, are uh, um, offices, will remain as office, and then another of the houses was the uh, museum. So the rest then we're, we're converting into 
uh, apartments. And they're, because of the Georgian typology, it's been really, really interesting, the, the challenge of adapting them. And I suppose we took a view that it was better to work with the building and the building's qualities. So we have a, maybe a smaller number of large apartments. So okay. some of them have triplex over duplex. So they're really houses, one house on top of another. And from the arts category, there are many entertaining stories. And one that I collected in County Clare from Davuk and Anne Wren is really, really interesting. Um, Anne is a sister of Christy Moore, and Davuk uh, was involved in antiques for many, many years. They're both great musicians. Here's a clip from that interview. And at the time, Davik was, was a bit of a bohemian, was he? Oh, a, a bit of a bohemian. He's a right old beatnik. <laughs> a right old beatnik, yeah. I first saw Davik in Pat Dowling's pub. I was, I think I was about 16. And my, uh, Christy, Christy was, uh, was home from England, I think. He was over uh, working in England as a folk singer. And he came home. And the on famille, Mammy, Mammy and Eilish Terry, myself and Christy went out to Pat Dowling's regular Wednesday night session in Prosperous. And I walked in the door and this fellow was over in the corner playing a flute with other people. And I just, I just saw him. I just, that was it. That was it. End of story, like. <laughs> 53 years later, we're still together. Fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. But tell me one thing. Uh, you made a living out of selling, buying and selling antiques. Oh, very much so, yeah. I couldn't make a living out of farming, and uh, I did a terrible thing, which was always given out to me for a while afterwards. I sold land, because I had a share in the land. The rest of the families would have had uh, the rest of their share. My sister still has, has some of the land, and, and we came down to live. But I was dealing all the time. I was dealing away, I suppose my first deal... In antiques, it was probably at a flag hole. You see, I was doing the music as well. And I'd say it was about 1961 or 62, maybe. So I've been dealing constantly since then, yeah. It might have been even in the 50s. I think it might be 58. I saw um, I saw a horse-drawn hearse somewhere. And uh, myself and a couple of my mates at the time bought it. It cost me 15 shillings. And they sat outside of our house up in Kildare for years and years before I could get anyone to buy it. And the heated hunter had to scrap it and I sold the wheels for something and then I sold the lamps for something else and something else. Eventually I got my money back. So now that nearly stopped me antique dealing. <laughs> Under the category of medicine, there are quite a number of interviews that offers the listener a wide area of research. Alex Lyons was a consultant psychiatrist in Belfast during the Troubles. And here's a clip from his interview. Well, so setting up those two day daycare centres. Yes, well, those two, that was a big part of my work, setting up those day hospitals. And the one in the north in particular lent itself uh, to, to research because when I was setting it up, the troubles were just beginning, and it was a good place to uh, study the psychological effects of the troubles. Yes, and there must have been a lot of depression and people uh, 
exasperated and, and you know, kind of leading to, to breakdowns. Well, whenever you're thinking about the effect on mental health, you have to think about the whole population. Uh, certainly what you say is correct as regards some individuals. Generally speaking, the whole population felt healthier and felt better. And that is what's known as the wartime phenomenon. Explain. Well, uh, it's, it's giving people a purpose in life. It's coming together in different organizations. Whereas if you take the Northern Ireland situation, people came together in uh, paramilitary groups, in peace groups, in political groups. So people got, uh, got organized and a lot of people found a role for themselves. And for our final clip, I selected from the sports category, Mabel Lyons. And this is really fascinating because Mabel talks about um, competing in show jumping in the RDS in the 1930s. And when the event was over, she rode all the way back to kill in County Kildare. I brought. I went to the show in Dublin and uh, we were all day waiting to be called for the show, the competition I was in. And I suppose he was getting uh, tired, the horse himself, waiting round and shut up and everything. But when I went to compete, he did about three jumps and stopped completely and wouldn't jump anymore. Well, he wouldn't. He jumped out the side of them, but he wouldn't compete. And I had to write home that night, after all that, and, and I couldn't take him out till about seven o'clock at night. And I didn't know where I was, how to get home, riding. And I went up Harcourt Street. I shouldn't have gone into Harcourt Street somewhere <laughs> to find my way home. And of course, I don't know how I did it, but I rode home. Yeah. But the horse seemed to bring me home, the last end of it anyway, because I think I must have lost where I was yeah. direction. I think he brought me home. We've come to the end of this week's podcast. It was a special podcast on the uh, sound clips taken from the interviews relating to the collection A Century of Change. I hope you enjoyed listening to them and um, there are many, many more and uh, they're all available on our website if you'd like to download any of those full interviews. Uh, that's on irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Morris O'Keefe and I look forward again to uh, bringing you another podcast next week.